Before we start, I want to thank Nutcrack for supporting the Madisonian podcast. The beautiful crunch and the healthy, humble perfection that every Nutcrack pecan offers is simply superb. With great care, they handmake their Nutcrack candy pecans and its chili spiked cousin, Firecracker, three pounds at a time. I like it as a midday energy boost or a quick after-school snack. You can also put it on your breakfast oatmeal, use it as a salad topper, or throw it on your favorite flavor of ice cream. Nutcrack makes the world a little more delicious, one perfect nut at a time. And they're offering listeners of the Madisonian podcast a special discount. Use code MADISONIAN15 for 15% off purchases at nutcrack.com. That's N-U-T-K-R-A-C-K dot com. And use code MADISONIAN15 in all caps for 15% off your next purchase. My guest for today went to Catholic school and then transferred to public middle and high school here in Madison. The segregation and the lack of support and failing of black students sent him on a path of wanting to make change in our system. Now he has created a charter school here in Madison focused on closing those achievement gaps and supporting students of color. I'm Ben Brown and this is the final episode of the Madisonian Podcast. Today I spoke with Kaleem Kerr. Mr. Kerr isn't in anything for the money. He is in it for the kids and for ensuring successes in their futures. I think that this is what made me so interested in Mr. Kerr. The school he worked so hard to build despite setbacks is a story that needs to be told. The fight to build a school that closes achievement gaps was one that was harder than it should have been here in Madison's supposed liberal atmosphere. Now that one city schools is thriving and only growing, more and more are supporting its work. So please enjoy my interview with the founder and CEO of One City Schools, Kaleem Kerr. Yeah, Kaleem Kerr, I'm the founder and CEO of One City Schools in Madison. Awesome. So I am. I uh, was born in Mass- Madison, born and raised. My family's been here since 1907 on my grandfather's side and 1931 on my grandmother's side. My grandfather's uh, uncle, Sam- uh, Samuel Pierce, brought the family up here initially as a porter on a train called the Northwest Railway Train. And uh, he uh, ended up buying a house on Williamson Street and it's still standing. I think it's 1442 uh, East Williamson. Um, looks like the oldest house on the block, but there's a great couple that bought the house and tried to honor and preserve the history of it. Um, and uh, he was born in New Orleans, brought, brought up here by his mother. And then my grandmother came from Gurdon, Arkansas in 1931 after her father passed. Um, back in those days, the black community didn't really let um, single mothers be raised their children without having a community support or a male figure around too to help with boys, things like that. So a local church here brought her up here uh, and I brought, brought all the whole family up here. And so she had four daughters and I was the son of the second oldest daughter named Corrine. Uh, my mom happened to be very bright, uh, brilliant, uh, smart, highly intelligent and uh, but also highly attitudinal and did not like the fact that she was teased as a lot as a kid. She was tall for a young girl. She was big, heavy. She was super smart, 
you know, sort of people consider that kind of nerdy. Um, and she started to fight a lot, got kicked out of school. And when she was going to Madison Central High School, and so she never actually finished her, I don't believe she ever finished her high school diploma. So I ended up uh, being born, born to her, but it was at a turbulent time in her life. She really didn't take good care of me. And so um, at two years old, my aunt and uncle, or my aunt and cousin, Amelia, saw me, sent, uh, my aunt Dolores, the oldest daughter, saw me standing on the street corner at uh, East Washington Avenue where Gardner's Bakery is. And I was in a diaper and a t-shirt. And my aunt said, you know, you were such a bright little boy. She said, we were shocked to see you there by yourself and you were looking at the light, waiting for the light to turn green. And so they scrambled, jumped out of the car, it was busy traffic and picked me up. I never went back to live with my mother again. And so stayed with my aunt Dolores for a little while. I think I was at my grandmother's house for a short period and then ended up at my, spent some time with my aunt Marie. Uh, with her son, but I uh, ended up at my aunt uh, Gretchen's house, who was the youngest daughter. She was 23 at the time, carrying her own child. And she ended up raising us on Fisher Street, the same street that the uh, One City Schools was founded on. That's a wild that is one block from where I grew up in the townhouses there. So I was raised at 2130 Fisher Street and um, had a, uh, a great childhood, but a challenging one at the same time. And I can get more into that. Yeah. Um, kind of tell me about what the school experience was for you in, the, in those early years. How was elementary school? How was middle school? Tell me about that. Yeah, so uh, elementary school. So I went to a daycare called Small Size, and it was on the corner of Lakeside and Gilson Street in South Madison. And it was, uh, or Olin in, in um, Gilson Street. And it was a wonderful place. I remember the teacher I had to this day, her name was Chris, and she really looked out for me, man. And, you know, back in those days, you know, when you're little, you don't know, but I was going through a lot. And I was, you know, a precocious kid. I was energetic. I don't know if I was attitudinal or not, but I know that I would get into things here and there. And, you know, I just felt loved and cared for at that place, especially by her. Um, she paid a lot of special attention to me. And so um, I went from there to kindergarten at Franklin Elementary School. And that was back in the day when from Fisher Street in South Madison, I don't know if you know where that is, where Penn Park is, but my aunt would take me to my grandmother's house early in the morning. And then all the kids would walk to school and all the adults would stand outside. There were adults along the way that would stand outside to watch all these little kids walk that far to school. Um, it was pretty amazing, man, the community support that we had back then. But I remember enjoying walking to school and um, went to kindergarten there at Franklin. And then there was a desegregation case that my my grandparents and aunts and uncles were involved in when the Madison schools were cited for, uh, you know, segregating kids in schools and also not. Uh, really providing adequate resources to black children. Back then, most black kids went to Franklin and Lincoln school. And it so happened that the city was busing kids from various places into those two schools to keep them out of other schools. That's what it seemed like. And the black community was cool with it because there was really no achievement gap. That's what a professor, Michael Olnick at the university, he's still around, 
Um, he's emeritus professor now, but he was young then, and he found that there was no achievement gap between black and white kids back then. But what the black community wanted were um, was was more resources for their kids. They, they were like, look, these kids over at these other schools are getting these newer books, these opportunities. We want that. And instead, they filed, so they couldn't get support from the school district, so they filed a complaint with the U.S. Office of Civil Rights. And what the U.S. Office of Civil Rights was pushing back then was desegregation. And so instead of getting more resources, they got a desegregation plan. And it broke up those schools. And what ultimately ended up happening was Lincoln, which was a middle school at the time, ended up closing for a while. And when it reopened, it reopened years later as an elementary school. Um, and uh, the kids who went to Franklin were then sent to uh, one of four different elementary schools. And then the kids who were at Lincoln Middle School were sent to three different middle schools. Um, they either went to Cherokee um, or uh, Senate. And then some kids, we didn't have right middle school back then. There were some kids who were sent to Van, to Van Heys, uh, depending on where they lived. And then, um, or not Van Heys, to, to whatever the, the, I think it was called Van Heys Middle School, or was, it was the middle school at that point. It changed names since then. And then we went to one of three high schools. So everybody used to go to West High School. And then we ended up going to La Follette West to Memorial High School. And so it just really, you know, families sort of really build their relationships around their kids in school and it really broke up those relationships a lot. So that strong foundation we had. So me going to St. I ended up going to St. James after first after uh, kindergarten, a Catholic school. My grandfather, he was a member of the parish. Uh, he was a black Louisiana Catholic. Um, so I went there from first through seventh grade. I want to ask um how do you think your your educational experience would have like differed like in those early years if you if it would have had if it would have stayed segregated into those two elementary schools? That's a good question, man. Um, you know, if they had adequate resources, I was excited about going to Lincoln because everybody talked about it. You know, you saw the older kids in the community and my cousins and you know, I was just excited to be able to go to school with with other kids from the neighborhood. You know, when you're little, you don't really think in terms of black and white necessarily, but it was just a community. And when it closed, I know there was a lot of disappointment in my family. There was a lot of disappointment in the neighborhood and I was too young to be disappointed. Plus, I was by then I was at St. James, so I knew I was just going to stay there. But looking back on it, I know I would have I probably would have ended up going to that school and. It would have been an amazing experience, man, to go to school with, you know, kids from the neighborhood and not have them all going to all these different schools. Yes. I think I would have had a different identity around education, too. I don't think I would have had, when I got to public school in eighth grade at Cherokee, my grades just plummeted. Um, it was like a whole, they had like a whole other school for black kids, it felt like there. Yeah, so, I mean, kind of walk me through what, what, that experience was like in middle school um i mean what was different about it from what the education that you were getting at, at st james um yeah yes yeah, so so the um the, so the difference at st james was that we had one grade level one class for every grade level but there were large classes too so i remember having like 35 kids in my class you know and now now today people would like go crazy at that but there were a lot of kids. Um, I had a lot of fun with my peers in those classrooms in those days. 
So when I got to Cherokee, I noticed how large the school was, number one. Um, and, you know, I walked in, I was like, man, first of all, the school is massive in and of itself compared to St. James. Uh, but uh, the different classes they had and how they moved from class to class was different. The, few, the community feel, I didn't, I didn't, even though I was there for a year, I still never felt that sense of community that I felt um, when I was at St. James. We all knew each other. Our families knew each other. By then, there were quite a few Black students and Latino students and Asian students in my class. I think St. James is still the most diverse private school in Madison. Um, so that was different. The quality of teaching was different. Um, it was not as good as the teaching I got at St. James. And then the way they treated Black students, man. I remember walking in and going down to the cafeteria on my first day and looking for my friends from the neighborhood because several of them knew I was coming. And they were in the back waving like, hey, man, come over here, come over here. But there was a sea of white kids in front of me. And all the black kids are sitting in the back at a row of tables all along the back wall. And then you had some Latino and Asian kids towards the end or sprinkled through it uh, out. And then there were a few black kids sprinkled in and Asian kids in the middle of white kids, but not much. And that's when I was like, holy cow. I never seen anything like that. I went to school with a lot of white kids at St. James. We all sat together. You know, it was like, it was just different, man. So being immersed in that segregated environment when your identity is really forming uh, strongly in eighth grade, uh, it, 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 it confused the hell out of me, honestly. I didn't know what to do. Um, I think I was confused the whole time I was at Cherokee. Because I just couldn't understand why were all the black kids in the remedial classes? Not all of them, most of them were in the remedial or lower level classes. Um, you know, the girls, more, more girls did their work than boys did. I was sitting next to the guys that I grew up with in the neighborhood and they have to read passages out of a book and they can barely read. I mean, it was just like, it was amazing, man. I know a lot of that's driven what I do today because of the experiences I had both there and then uh, going to West High School. It was just, uh, it was, it was weird. And it, for a kid that age, you know, it was traumatic. It was traumatic. Did you experience any difference in high school? Were you able to, was it less segregated at all or no? Um, no, it was your... still segregated. Still segregated. When you walked into the cafeteria at West, um, you go to West High School, right? So when you walk in the cafeteria, that's how old the school is, man. It hasn't changed. <laughs> you can walk, you walk in that lower level and you just go straight back and right to the left, right when you got into the cafeteria area, that's where all the black kids would sit. And then white kids who wanted to be down with us would sit there with us too. But it was mostly, um, it was mostly us. And uh, it, um, it was, it was that that and it was by then I just got it because I went to Cherokee and it was the same thing. You know, we had fun. We were loud. We would joke. And, you know, white kids sort of did their thing. And you'd have a few black kids that more that sat more with the white kids back then. Um, I think it was driven more by their parents. They wanted to make sure that they were academically prepared and that's who they were raised around. They might have lived near them. And so we, we ended up I would I would communicate with white students. But my friends who were white was more so through sports because I played sports year round. And so I had white friends, but we didn't really hang out much outside of school. Um, I hung out more with my black peers and the white kids who lived near us on the south side. 
So it was very segregated. Um, the other thing was I was in upper level classes. I was in college bound classes from the beginning all the way through. And I tell people I got a 1.56 GPA. That was my grad. That was what my GPA was when I graduated. But I joke and tell people, but I think I got that 1.5 GPA, but I took physics. I took chemistry. I took all those classes. I just hated being the only black kid in all my classes. And four years of high school, I had class with black students three times. Three times. And maybe I might have been a fourth because I always forget about health class. I think I had some other black kids in health and by ed, but I don't really count that. My other classes were um, was uh, algebra two, geometry and an English class that I had. And that was it all four years of high school. And so, you know, all the most of the black kids had their classes on the first floor. That's when they kind of sort of had tracking back then. And so I just wanted to be with my friends, man. I always I felt out of I felt out of uh, out of sync with other kids in the school when they would pick reading groups or study groups. You know, I would sort of be the last one to get picked all the way up till probably junior year. So those first couple of years, it was miserable going to West High School. Um, I did not like the experience overall in the school. I did like my peers. I love playing sports. I generally like my coaches. There were a handful of teachers that I liked, but I didn't feel like I belonged there. And so when I left, man, I was ready to be gone. I remember me and Michael Andrews, whose father, by the way, Morris Andrews, was, um, was the leader of the Wisconsin Education Association, WEAC. He was the head of the t state teachers union. <laughs> and he, Mike was adopted. He was African-American and Morris is white. But I remember us going to graduation and we both just said, you know what? We threw on our scowns. We had shorts on. We walked into the graduation and we just did it. And then afterwards, we jetted up out of there. Our parent, our families were there. We got out of there quick, man, because that's how much we wanted to be done with West High School. Do you think ultimately the Madison Public School District like failed you? I mean, oh, is that, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. They failed us. They failed most of these kids. I remember starting in school, look, you know, you get your yearbook and then you look at if you went in West High School now and you looked at 1985. That was my freshman year. And then you looked at 1988, 89. That was my senior year. You would see a difference and look at the black kids freshman year and then look at the pictures of senior year. I think we graduated maybe 20, 25 percent of the kids that I started high school with. And most of them, most of the black males did not finish. I remember counting at graduation. I think I only counted eight or nine of us that actually graduated from high school at that point. Um, and it's funny, all of us who played sports tended to graduate. If you didn't play sports, it was very few of us. Um, yeah, it's just amazing. So, but nobody ever like rang the alarm bell, except that we had a few black counselors, my cousin, Joe Thomas, um, he's a first cousin to my to my mom. He was a minority service coordinator. He, I think he was the first one in the Madison School District. He was a counselor. Outside of him, we have one guy who was in this like sort of a hall monitor, assistant teacher. I don't know what his role was, but his name was Lloyd Harris. And I can't remember. We had Mr. Hawkins as a he was the only black teacher at West High School, but I never had him because he was an art teacher. I didn't take art. But it was just a it was a it was just a place, man, where we went to school and hung out. But I don't really feel like people really intentionally as a group pushed us. There were individual teachers that did. My counselor, for example, is terrible, man. He told me I wasn't college material from the beginning. 
and that I should be settling for more of a tech college type of an experience. And that, 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 that like shook me. But when I went to also had to take the ACT, SAT, I was a good athlete. I could have went to college to play football, run track. Um, people just didn't push us like that. And I remember Coach Hobley, Bert Hobley was the uh, world famous, you know, bad football coach or state famous at that point. He came to me in my senior year after like the first two or three games and said, you know, told me to take this walk with him from the library, went to his, uh, his classroom and his desk. He pulled out a stack of letters from colleges and gave them to me. Those letters were sent to him, most of them the year before. Or that summer, he got some too, because I went to the summer camp. I think that's when most of them started coming. But it was just weird, man. Um, so I just look back on that experience. I have fond memories of my peers who I went to school with. Like a lot of us still connect up on social media and whatnot, or in person. But the school itself, not much. Yeah. Did you kind of have an idea out of high school of, of what you wanted to go on to do for a living, potentially? I had absolutely no idea. Literally, I went in the military. I was I used to walk up and down Fisher Street and down Park Street with some of my friends. And we would all talk about when we were younger, about all the things we wanted to do. By junior, senior year, we were just trying to get a job. You know, we weren't even really talking that much about the future, only a few people. And so I remember feeling like my, so my cousin drugs really hit the South side back then too. That was the crack cocaine trade days. And I remember drugs just sort of came out of nowhere. It was like, what happened, man? I had a, my, one of my uh, cousins who I looked up to was a big brother when he got strung out and started losing weight and looking terrible. And I remember he's got, he got into gang activity, was all, all that stuff. I remember um, looking at myself in the mirror one day at my grandmother's house was my senior year and I wasn't getting along with my aunt. So I stayed at my grandmother's house by myself for my whole senior year because she was staying first in Arkansas for a little while. And then she stayed with my aunts and them so they could help take care of her. And I remember looking and like, man, what the heck am I going to do when I'm done with school? I, I just, I was really lost. So one day I was coming back from a girlfriend's house and I saw on East Washington Avenue, we never had a car. So I was always on the bus. I saw the sign on East Washington Avenue. It said, be all you can be. And it had all these pictures of people in the military and they had a couple black guys in the photos. And I just remember thinking about the military. Something told me to ring the bell. So I rang the bell. I got off, went into this building. First thought I was going to go to be a Marine, but they had a terrible, terrible uh, promotional person. When I walked in, I'm like, the last guy you want to get a young person into the Marines is a guy who's six foot five, muscles busting out of the place and scared the hell out of me. <laughs> so I was going to lock into the Marines when I saw him. He's like, hey, how you doing, man? I was like, oh, I'm good. I'll see you later. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so I started walking down to go out the building in the other area. And this little small white dude came walking out with some donuts. Hey, man, had a high voice. Hey, man, what you here for? You want to hear about this man's military, this man's Navy or something like that? I turned around. I looked at him and I was like, he looked cool. So I went in and sat down and talked with him. And next thing you know, man, that we must have been some been there like two, three hours just hamming it up with the guys that were in there. 
and really got excited about what they were showing me. So I made a decision to join the Navy and my aunt signed for me because my birthday's in July. So I was 17 when I graduated. You know, I couldn't sign myself up at that point. So she had to approve it. And so I went in in this delayed entry program. I, I signed up to go in the military in March. And when I graduated two weeks later, I was in the Navy. Wow. So it saved me to get out of here, man, because most of my peers who stayed in Madison did not do well. Uh, most of them, the vast majority, the ones who left Madison, most of them did do well. Um, but yeah, it's just uh, Madison wasn't the greatest place for us, man. And unfortunately for a lot of kids now, it's still not. Yeah. Um, what experiences did you draw out of um, being in the military? I mean, what experiences was that for you overall? You know, it was, first of all, the, the challenge of just succeeding in boot camp, you know, and getting through that. It was the first significant feeling of accomplishment I had that was really like my accomplishment. All, you know, I played sports and, you know, in sports, it's really your team's accomplishment. And although I ran track as a little kid a couple summers, it wasn't serious, you know. And even in high school, it was more team oriented. But that was a time where I really felt like myself, it challenged me big time to like overcome uh, lackadaisical attitude towards achievement. Yeah, I had developed bad habits, you know, um, not, um, not uh, taking things seriously, man, and not getting things done on time or getting things done to a high quality and not following the rules. So I had to learn all of that. But three days in the boot camp, I got into a fight in the back of the ranks. I was a one. I was the kid too, like to sit in the back of the bus, sit in the back of the class. You know, I was. I would. I don't like to be noticed, but I also didn't want to be held accountable. <laughs> so um, I would march. I went to march in the back of the ranks. I think I was second from the back, and we had ninety six guys, and there were six rows of us. That's how we would march, and. This guy from San Diego, another brother, was trying to test me because I was really built up and strong, too. I had a lot of muscle and all of that. So he was trying to challenge me and stepping on my heels. And at the one point, I told him, I said, man, you're going to do this again. I'm going to knock you out. And he did it again. So I turned around and elbowed him in his face and then started punching him when he fell on the ground. And they, the company commander came and broke it up. And the guys were all like, oh, man, you know. And he said, uh, what the hell is wrong with you? You know, they cuss you out in the military. <laughs> I said, and he's stepping on my boots. He said, oh, you're a baby, huh? He's stepping on your boots. Boo, hoo, ho. I'm like, I said, I looked at him. He said, what you going to do? What you going to do? I was like, I was ready to fight him, too, because I was still hyped up. He said, you bad, huh? He looked at me. He was a little short white guy from Detroit. And I, I tell people this day, I didn't even know white people lived in Detroit at that point. You know? <laughs> And I told him he must have lived on Eight Mile with Eminem, because uh, he had that. He was real smooth. He taught he taught more slang than I did. His name was Petty Officer McLaughlin, and he said, uh, "You bad, huh?" He said, "I answer me, you bad, huh?" I said, "Hell yeah, I'm bad." He said, "Oh, oh, all right, all right." He said, "All right, will you come with me?" Grab me by my shirt. I said, "Man, don't grab me." He looked at me, put his finger in my face. He said, "You shake away from me again and see what happens." He grabbed my shirt again and pulled me. And I pulled away. He said, I'm going to give you one last chance. You're going to walk with me or am I going to have to drag you? Now, this dude was short. <laughs> I was like, I'll walk. So then he walks me up to the front 
and he tells this guy last name Judge. He was black. He was our he was our recruit chief petty officer. Like let us. He said, Judge, you suck. Get to the back of the ranks. He said, you march us to chow. And at that moment, at 17, he made me the leader of our 96 guys. I was the second youngest dude. The oldest was 34. And he made me the leader of the troop. And he challenged me. But he told me at the end of boot camp, he, he said he needed somebody who was a leader. And he just saw it in me. And that was the first time, man, in my childhood where somebody saw me as a leader like that. They were willing to give me that much responsibility. And at the end of boot camp, um, we got through boot camp and we got an award, a special citation from the, the U.S. Secretary of the Navy at the time. His name was H. Lawrence Garrett III. He spoke at our graduation. And when he announced that we had won, they used to give an award to the best troop in that in each graduating class. And um, my graduating class had a thousand men, you know, in it, different troops. And we won best foot forward. And he said, in this group, I want to give him a special citation. He said, because in 14, they're the first group in 14 years to get through, first company to get through boot camp without having any what they call street marks or demerit points. Um, and my, 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 the guys, man, they all just jumped on me after that. Now imagine being under a bunch of guys, 96 guys, almost, almost drowned to death on that pavement that day, almost suffocated. But it was, uh, it was beautiful, man, but it was that moment when I realized that I had leadership potential and I never looked back after that. So where did you go with that leadership potential out of, out of the military? I mean, walk me through that. Yeah. So I made rank really fast because one, I was a submariner. I was a sonar technician. And as a sonar technician, once you get through all your training, you automatically become a third, uh, a, uh, or once you get through boot camp, you enter your training as a third class petty officer. And so it was called E4. So you bypass E1, E2, E3. And then, um, you know, I did well in all my classes, my training. I, when I got through sub school, I was in school for two years in the military for three. Um, and uh, when I got through all my training, I got to choose my duty station. And I had the choice between California or being in San Diego, or actually I had a girlfriend at that point being in uh, Hawaii or going to Norfolk, Virginia. And my girlfriend scared me to death because she wanted me to marry her. And a lot of my friends were getting married young at that age too. And I'm like, man, I'm not ready to be married. <laughs> Absolutely not. So I ended up, uh, I didn't tell her, but I ended up choosing a duty station in Norfolk, Virginia. Plus my one of my best friends from Madison was going to a black college there named Hampton University. And he was sending me Polaroids of all these beautiful black girls on campus. <laughs> So I was like, I'm going there. And um, I ended up changing my duty station and go there. And it was uh, it was just one leadership experience after another. I did have some adversity. There was a point towards the end of my service where I was getting out and I hurt my knee. So I, they let me out early because um, they, they, they had to retrain me. So they said, either you got to go surface and be a sonar technician on a surface ship because I was tall and my knee wasn't healing well on a sub or we got to retrain you. And, you know, I said, what is, what's the other option? He said, well, we pay for you to go to college. I said, well, I've got the GI bill. And back then the GI bill only paid for a portion of your education. They said, no, we pay for the whole thing. And we'll give you a stipend every month. And when I found that out, I was like, wait, 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 you mean you're going to, 
I said, what if I got into Harvard? They said, well, if you get in, we pay for it. I said, all of it? They're like, yeah. I said, oh, heck no. So at bad points, I didn't really think college was going to be really possible for me because of the cost and things like that. So, you know, I ended up getting out. But before I got out, man, I got into a big brawl. That's a whole nother story. A big fight where I was charged with citing a riot and a bunch of other stuff. And I almost was told I could spend five to 35 years in prison in the Navy. Yeah, they put me in prison for three days. You're guilty before proven innocent in the military under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. I remember being in that jail, that cell, man, and just thinking my life was over, you know. Uh, but a bunch of guys wrote a letter to say what really happened. I ended up getting out. And then shortly thereafter, I ended up uh, being released from the military. I got my orders to, you know, to go home. And I stayed in Hampton and went to Hampton University because I started dating my, my kid's mother, who's now my wife, started dating her there and um, entered that school, man, with terrible skills, but um, a ter- significant determination to succeed. So I started in English 101, 102 was scared to do that on the day campus with the rest of the students. So I did those classes at night, but started school as a 21-year-old freshman and um, ended up transferring to Madison a year later with Lisa, pregnant with our, our oldest son with a 4.0 GPA. And then ended up in Ag and Life Sciences. I was pre-med student. Um, we're going up, we're getting ready to be a doctor. Started hanging out in the old neighborhood again seeing how many of my friends were going to prison and jail and kids weren't going to school. And eventually after volunteering, I decided to switch my major and focus on education. So, I mean, what did you kind of um, do out of college with this major in education? I mean, there's so much to accomplish. I mean, so much to, you know, make change in, in Madison's, education system especially i'm sure even more at that time um but um what did you kind of do with that major right out of college yeah so i was all i was determined at that point to fix the system that i felt um was a part of breaking us you know um, a lot of us came with other kinds of challenges to schools but i believe schools should be sanctuaries for kids you know they should be that place that builds up your sense of self and concept and identity uh, was that's when you're you're developing your identity your personality is being developed in your earliest years um, and part of your DNA code decides your personality but then your identity is shaped you know between grades 11 12 13 you know between ages 11 12 13 around those ages where you really start to try to figure out who you are and at last through high school and into early adulthood but those are important years and this place didn't provide that kind of an environment. So I said, you know what? First, I got to figure out what's wrong with education. And so while I was in the teacher education program, I was excited to be there. It was um, it was problematic for me at the same time because I didn't feel like they were teaching us how to teach black and brown kids to, to be successful while I was in the School of Education at UW. I learned a lot. And so I was ready to drop out and go to UW-Milwaukee in hopes that they had this guy, Marty Haberman, who had this program called the Urban uh, Star, Star Teachers of Urban Youth and Poverty. And I wanted to go learn under him. 
And so they said, no, you don't have to leave. You know, we, we've got this individualized major program. We could have you complete that program. You can design your curriculum and design your degree. I was like, what? They said, yeah, it's this little known thing that we just don't tell people. So they showed it to me in the catalog. And I was like, oh, tell me more about this. And so I found that I had to find, I had to have uh, a professor who was willing to create a committee that would create my degree. And um, I wanted to focus on urban education. I wanted to understand what was wrong so I could figure out how to fix this. And so they introduced me to a gentleman, Michael Olnick. Um, I met with Mike. It was a summer. He took me to lunch. Uh, same guy I told you about earlier who did the research on Lincoln. And he took me to lunch right there in the library mall area on campus. I remember sitting in this little thing they used to have out there, this little like uh, uh, monument. And he encouraged me to take his class that summer. He said, you know, I have a class starting up next week. It was called Race Class and, Race class and Ethnicity and Education. And he used a book by a guy named Joel Spring. And he said, you know, I think this will help you figure out if you really want to do this or not. Man, I took that class. It was the end. I, I, I totally switched my focus because of what it showed, what it talked about was how education was used to root out the culture of Black people, Native Americans, and uh, people in Puerto Rico, the natives of Puerto Rico. And when I learned how the system functioned that summer and all the discussion we had around it, I said, oh, no, I'm going to fix this. And so that's when I uh, recruited Dr. Gloria Ladson Billings um, with Michael's help. Uh, another gentleman named Michael Fultz, who's one of the authorities on Black, on Blacks, T Blacks in Education, and he's a historian. And then um, I had Bill Tate, who's now the uh, president of LSU and uh, first Black president of LSU, too. And so I had those, those four as my committee members. They helped me shape my degree. And I took, I ended up taking over almost 60 credits in the graduate program for my undergraduate degree. And I learned a ton, man. And that's when I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to fix education and ended up working at the Department of Public Instruction um, and commissioned a study with them internally to figure out graduation rates for students of color in Wisconsin. And we found out that 50% of Black kids and Latino kids were graduating from schools in Wisconsin. I remember Tom Beebe was leading the research department. He was so shocked. He stayed overnight to run the data again. And he said, I could not believe this, Colleen. But when we took it to the state superintendent, John Benson, there was quietness. And then all of a sudden, we found out they didn't want to publish it. And John literally said, this is giving Black eye to public education in Wisconsin. And this isn't like this isn't a legitimate research. Like we've got to have a legitimate research on this. So I'm not going to release something. So I was like, oh, that's BS. Um, at the same time, I was a part of complete, uh, creating the people program that came from my brain. I told the university was advocating for them to use their pre-college programs differently. And so me, Lamar, Bill, uh, not Lamar Billups, uh, the provost at the time, um, I should not be forgetting his brother's name because I've just, I've just been talking with him getting old, man. Um, Walter Lane, Cleveland James, and uh, the, the vice provost at the time, we ended up meeting in his office and we had the people program. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you know about people, but it's at West High School. It's helped, you know, over hundreds of black and brown students and some white students to graduate from UW-Madison degrees. We um, 
started the tutoring program when I was there. My wife, Lisa, started the Information Technology Academy, ITA, which is like people. As I was doing all those things, but still wanting to change the system. And so when I left uh, Madison in 2000 to take on the leadership of this national organization, uh, first we were in Milwaukee and then we moved into D.C., I commissioned a nation study on high school graduation, which is why we talk about graduation rates today. And it was because John Benson wouldn't support it. I wanted to see what was going on nationally. So we hired an up and coming researcher named Jay Green. He now leads, he's now a big time professor at the University of Arkansas. And he did the study and went nationally, went nationwide, and it blew people away. When we found out that nationwide, only 50% of black and brown students were graduating from high school, and only 70, 70 was 74% of white kids. And it was talked about forever. And then around that time, the um, U.S. Department of Education was putting together the um, No Child Left Behind uh, strategy. And so the U.S. Secretary called us in, called all the research, all the peer reviewers, too. And they decided after realizing how legitimate this was to embed No Child Left Behind graduation rates and No Child Left Behind. So the reason we talk about that, the reason why billions of dollars have been poured into high school reform initiatives and all these other efforts is because of what they learned through that study. So I tell people where I barely graduated from West High School, growing up on the South Side, someone anonymous to the rest of Madison. Here you got this young guy who, you know, had people push me along the way. Um, no one ever thought that I would do something that would help millions of kids across the country and internationally. So I've done a lot, man. Yeah. So I want to ask, um, uh, how did how did the idea for um, Madison Preparatory Academy, uh, which I, I you can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, which uh, you you proposed to the Madison School Board, it, um, how did that come about? And and tell me about the process of kind of creating that idea and um, taking it to the school board. Yeah, so Madison Prep came about as a result of me coming back here and I told the folks when they were recruiting me back, you know, they recruited me into the pool to apply for the urban league presidency. And when I was named a finalist and came back and did my interviews, I told them in my final interview, um, the board of the urban league, I said, look, you know, my agenda, I said, I'm going to pursue starting a public charter school. Um, Madison is not done right by our kids. Um, there's options out here. I've, I've seen them. I've helped start schools. I've helped support them. And I want to bring these options to Madison and, you know, also challenge the, the workplace workforce, I mean, the employers in this area to hire more people too. And so when I got here, that was March 31st of 2010, I started meeting with people. And then by August, I had, I had uh, August 19th, I think it was, I submitted a request to the school district for nine page request for data. I wanted to know what was going on with students. I wanted to know how they about what they learned from evaluating their programs and all the money and things they've invested in to say they help us. Um, and when I found out that the data that they showed that there were, there was, there were years where at like Memorial one year, only 21% of black boys graduated from high school. 
there was a moment, I think it was at La Follette, where only 30% of Latino boys graduated from high school. And girls were always sort of around 50% or so. I said, how could you like, how could this not be a, a, a citywide, um, like, agenda? Like, like why, how could this come to be a priority if this is going on? Well, they never looked at it. They never looked at it. They just let kids fall off the way, fall on the wayside, not graduate, disappear, you know, and end up in the criminal justice system. And so when I realized that they had no strategy, I came back from a meeting with Dan Nirad, the superintendent at the time. I got on the phone and I called the reporter um, and I said, you know what? I said, I'm going to, I said, if you'd like to, I'm going to be, I'm going to meet you guys on the steps of West high school, my alma mater. And I'm going to announce that we're going to start a public charter school named Madison prep. And then I put an email out there to friends and I say, anybody want to join me? This is getting done. And I didn't, you know, I didn't have the detailed plan, you know, about all of this would roll out at the time, but I just wanted to shock Madison and say, this is happening. And it did. It totally upset the apple cart in the city. But the intention was to create an, an area, to create a model of excellence for black and brown students where people could see what our kids' potential really is. Because I believe that not only do white people, but black people in this town, very few people have seen what excellence looks like academically among black and brown students. I did, I went to Hampton, I went to a black college, I was in a black community, I, I'd been around, I had seen things, I was in Maryland, I saw black success over and over again, but they don't see it here. So I said, all right, we're gonna bring it, we're gonna build it here. And um, I wanted to give our kids an opportunity while at the same time giving the community an opportunity to see what we really could do if we just changed the way we did education. Yeah. So I know that the Madison Prep Preparatory Academy was the school board ultimately voted against it. Um, but how did that make you feel that they like denied your request for the, this public charter school that would close, you know, the achievement gap and, and provide like excellence to so many black boys in, in the district? I mean, how did you kind of feel about why they did that? Yeah, you know, I, I wasn't surprised because of the news, like as we got further into this, there were maneuvers by the teachers union to try to kill it. There were um, comments made by school board members um, who said, oh, I'm not going to vote for it. And here's why. Um, none of the reasons made any sense to us, um, although in a political sense, they did because it was all about maintaining union control and and white people's identity, like, no, we have not failed these kids. We, it's not our responsibility, it's, it's, it's the parents. And that's what we started to hear from these liberal people who say they're down with us, but they were blaming black people for the problem, you know, and, or it's somewhere else, or it's money, it's this, it's that. And um, they did not wanna take responsibility to, to, to prove something that could potentially prove them wrong. That's how I looked at it. And a lot of us who were involved with this did, and so it was disappointing. You know, I was ready to be told no, but it was disappointing. But the, but I was frustrated when we had that board meeting and we had um, there were I can't remember how many people now. It was like 67 people spoke um, in favor of our school, somewhere around in that number. There were 20 that spoke against it um, and they were all union. And so we ended up losing, man, five to two. 
And <clears throat> the community was really upset um, after that. And, you know, it was after the meeting, people were in tears, you know. Um, they saw this as an option for parents, saw it as an option for their children. I was disappointed. I was a little disillusioned by at that point, like, okay, if not this, then what do we do? Um, but I pledged that we weren't going to stop. We weren't going to give up. With this, um, with this setback, um, how did you kind of start to, to formulate the idea for, for one city and, um, and what was the process there of, of trying to get chartered and, and, um, and, to students, yeah. Um, the state legislature um, voted a, for a bill that gave all the technical colleges and all the four-year colleges and two-year colleges in Wisconsin the ability to charter schools. And through them, if you charter those schools, they can you can serve kids anywhere in the state of Wisconsin. So there are no like residential boundaries. And so when that was approved in 2017, they put together their process. They hired a guy named Gary Bennett, who actually helped write the law. Um, the charter school law, they put together their process. We were the, one of the first to apply. And then we opened up our school. We got approved. We opened up our school in the fall of 2018 as an elementary school. So we had the preschool, then we had elementary. We opened with 4K, 5K. And then we, our plan was to grow a grade of year until we really could figure out the business model for Madison and like how we could fund this. And um, now coming this fall, man, we'll have 278 kids in that um, elementary school, grades K, 4K through 4. And eventually we'll have almost 900 students, 4K through uh, 12th grade, plus our kids in our, uh, our preschool program. So we'll have about 1,000 kids here by 2024, um, attending one city. And we've, did, we've uh, over time, we've developed more and more community support. I think people, at least who support us, have overcome the, the barrier feeling about charter schools and will it take money from the public school system and will they serve the kids correctly? Now that people are able to see what we're doing and we're very transparent, we're winning a lot of more support. But it's been pure hell to get here. <laughs> it's been tough, man. A lot of personal costs, a lot of costs to our family. Um, our family has been through a lot as a result of all of this, but I'm just thankful that we've got this opportunity to provide one city to people in this community. So what successes have you seen with one city? I mean, I, um, even in lower grades, uh, I think you can probably notice um, little successes. Um, yeah, what what have you noticed with one city? Um, we had a tough year last year, but the year before that, that's, that uh, fall when we tested our kids in the fall of 2019 and we looked at the data and we couldn't compare apples to apples with Madison because they don't test kids younger than third grade. We test our kids starting in kindergarten, but we use a similar assessment. And so when we looked at our data of our, our first graders compared to our kindergarten and first graders compared to their um, third graders. We found that only 14% of our our black students was the biggest number we could look at because that's the largest number in our school. Only 14% of our black students scored at the minimal category compared to 55% of black students in the Madison schools. Most of our kids were at basic or proficient. And in kindergarten, most of them should be at the basic level. Um, but we, we saw made crazy results from that, man. And then this year has been a 
crazy year. It's not a good year to like look at test data for any school, unfortunately. But we've been able to chart the progress of our students and the majority of our students have demonstrated solid growth and in a couple of our classes, excellent growth. Um, and so we're doing well, you know, academically our kids are doing well, but more than that, there's no school I've ever been a part of that has a level of parent involvement that one city has. I'm sure there's some out there, but not in this community, man. I mean, we get so many families to get involved in our school. They, we always have 100% participation at parent-teacher conferences. Um, we do them three times a year. We get uh, um, families really involved. We got parents on my board. We've got a peer active parent-led parent council. Um, we have parents involved in you know, doing things for the school, volunteering in the school, helping us attract staff and volunteers. So um, Madison can learn a lot from what we're doing with that. And then just the flexibility of our staff, like everybody at that school is focused on that mission of those kids. And people are willing to work a longer school year, longer school day. Uh, we are we are the only longer school year school day program in the state of Wisconsin. And where most teachers work seven, eight hour days, our teachers work eight and a half our days. Um, they're in school until July 30th. And um, we do give them off about 60 days a year. If you put all the time off that we're together, so we have figured out how to give them more time off to be somewhat comparable with the Madison schools and area schools. But our staff, man, the deep commitment they have to these children can be questioned. And then um, the diversity of our team. Uh, well, I can't wait till we show who our new staff is, man. This, these, these team members, they're just beautiful. <laughs> it's uh, we have a little bit of everybody coming to one city. Our our school's majority, eighty five percent students of color. We have fifty percent white students, but our staff, man, it's uh, it's beautiful. We have black, Asian, Latino, white. We have it all, and um, and it's not by design. Like we did cast a wide net. We tried to appeal to a broad demographic. But just in terms of diversity hiring, you know, we've, we've been successful in that. So, so far, things are going well. It's tough financially because we get a fraction of the money that Madison gets to serve its kids. We get not from the state. We get $9,165 this year for each kid. Madison, next year, it'll be probably $200 more than that. Um, next, Madison's going to spend about $17,000 per kid next year with the referendum. And then they've got all that ESSER money coming from the, uh, the uh, bill to overcome the pandemic, which if they get the full $70 million, that's a lot of money. And I hope they get it, but um, they get to count our kids. Like any district where our kids live, that district gets to count them towards their property tax revenue. So they get to keep that revenue that they levy the community for, for our kids. So literally, I'm like, well, I want that money. You know, these are my kids. They go to this school. So Madison gets to keep about six, $7,000 per kid that they don't serve. Um, so we have to raise all of that. So, you know, we're going to address that because we think it's patently unfair that we have to raise all this money to support our kids. Um, and, uh, not get the money that goes to districts. That just doesn't doesn't seem right. So I want to talk for a minute about the new building that you guys have pretty recently purchased with a large donation from from uh, Pleasant Roland. But um, talk about kind of what 
new opportunities this new building brings and um, what the expansion of, of one city will be like. Yeah, when we get the keys on July 30th, I'll, I'll give you a tour, man. We um we close on that day. So that's my birthday, too. I turned 50 on the 30th. It's not by design. It just happened that that's the date that they said we're going to close. I'm like, that's crazy. Because that's also the date that the IRS stamped as when we are when we were founded. So when they received our application, when they stamped that date, that's their official date. So the official date of the founding is July 30th, too. So it's like it's meant to be. But we're going to have a 157,000 square foot building um, owned, formerly owned, soon to be formerly owned by WPS. But it's 13.5 acres. It includes a uh, 714 stall parking deck. But we're going to tear down the parking deck and build up a very large athletic center there that's going to have the area's only true indoor FIFA regulated size soccer field. Um, turfed out. It's going to have two big basketball courts in it, um, fitness areas uh, for weight training, cardio. It's going to have area for dance and dance studios in it, area for wrestling, things like that. Um, it's going to be cool, man. It's going to honor the the environment that we're in, where we, we literally, our building is on sacred Ho-Chunk grounds. Um, and so we're trying to make sure that the building we're building has some elements of native culture in it, you know, community, their, their culture and honors and recognizes them. Um, Cause we want to just honor the fact that we're on their land. And um, we're going to have uh, again, about 888 students is what we're projecting to have in that building kindergarten through 12th grade. We'll keep our 4k students over at the preschool on Fisher street. We'll open this fall. Uh, in that building. So when we open all of our kids, 4K through four will be on the top floor in temporary classrooms um, while they build out the first floor. And then we'll move down, move the kids down there. When we come back from our first semester, we have three trimesters, we have a trimester system. So after that first semester in January, January 25th, we'll move all the kids into that first level and then they'll renovate the other levels and it'll all be done. <clears throat> by the fall of 20, um, uh, 22. So by August of next year. And then we hope to be able to break ground on construction sometime between now and then of the athletic center so that that can be done sometime during the 2022, 23 school year. Um, but it's going to be phenomenal, man. We're going to have the, um, how we're going to have tech, high tech center, for uh, technology learning, we're going to have, uh, you know, for STEM learning, we're going to have music room, we're going to have a DJ booth, because our, our school, you won't transition classrooms by bells, you're going to transition by music. And when you come to school, it's going to be Jay-Z playing, welcome you to school. <laughs> you know, we'll have all kinds of music, cultural music. Um, so music is going to be a huge part of it, too. But it's also going to be the state's first true early college and career high school where by 10th grade, all of our students have to begin taking college classes. And um, we're establishing right now with UW-Madison a five-year bachelor's degree program where if you were going to our school in ninth grade, you could start taking your prereqs in ninth grade with us. And then in 10th and 11th grade, your classes would be taught by Madison College teachers. <clears throat> and then, in a, then, your 11, then your 12th grade year and one year after that, would be at UW and you would have a bachelor's degree in elementary, secondary, special education or early childhood education by age 19, you can turn around and teach. 
So we're doing really cool programs like that, man. When people see what this school is going to offer, they're going to be blown away. And um, I can't wait. And so our, our elementary school and preschool are designed to get our kids ready for that type of experience because our students are going to be the ones that lead Madison going forward. That's my intention. And wherever they end up, they're going to be people who make a significant contribution to the world and also their families. Like there's no driver's ed in the schools anymore. Kids are going to all have driver's license by the time they graduate. Summit Credit Union, um, they have, they have uh, credit unions in the four comprehensive high schools. They're going to build a credit union, student-run credit union in our school. We're going to have a student-run coffee shop. Uh, we're going to have a catering service. We're going to have all this stuff in that building, man. So I can't wait to show people what's going to be there. Yeah, I want to ask because I, I I was researching and I, I saw in a video that one kid mentioned that you have ballet. Um, is that is that true? Yeah. You you have ballet? Yeah, we have ballet, man. It's it's called an academy that we do. We do our our we have a longer school day. We're the only longer school day, longer school year public school in Wisconsin. And through that longer school day, people are like, what are you doing? Are you just giving them like an hour more of reading? It's like, well, we give them a great time, but we give them part of that time is the hour they get of additional learning where they're able to get involved in activities that really build on our school's curriculum, but also give them access to things that they would not be able to gain access to in a regular school because it'd be extracurricular and their parents have to pay for it. So our kids do martial arts. Martial arts is one of the most expensive um, sports in America, but we pay for it. So our kids do it every week at our school. Um, they've test, they've done belt tests for before COVID kids were getting their belt tests done. They'd have ceremonies for that. Um, we have kids uh, doing ice skating and then they were going to go play hockey, learn how to play hockey after that. And we bust them over to Madison ice arena with a grant that they got for us. We have Madison, uh, we have Monroe street arts teaching art in our school. We have a fitness guy. We, we went online this year and we have kids doing fitness. We have dance. We have drumming. Um, all those things are snowshoeing. Our kids went snowshoeing this year in the morning. Um, and in the, the winter, we do snowshoeing in the, in the uh, when it's warm out, they have a bike crew. And so we work with Dream Bikes. And they got all of our kids' bikes. Um, and there's another group that comes and fixes up the bikes for the kids. And so it's been phenomenal, man, but it makes our school a place that our kids really want to be. And so, so far, man, our kids love coming to school. I don't think I've ever heard a kid say, I want to go home. I only have one. There's only one kid said he wanted to go home. That's everyone else wants to stay. And you never know what a young person is going to get into unless you expose them to it. Right. So it's like, you know what? We want to expose them to everything. And help them find their gift and their passion. Because once you find that, man, it makes everything else more meaningful. Yep, exactly. Well, thank you so much for doing this again. Is there anything else you want to say to listeners at all? No, just thank you, man. I'm excited about you. Keep going. Let us know if you need something, man. You got a tremendous talent already. Um, don't know what you'll end up doing with it, but it's exciting to talk to you. You can find One City at onecityschools.org or by clicking the link in the description of this episode. Support us by supporting our advertisers. 
Use code MADISONIAN15 for 15% off your next purchase at knockcrack.com. The Madisonian Podcast is a production of Benjamin Brownie in association with VR Productions. It's hosted by me, Ben Brown. Cover our editing, producing, and booking also by me. If you are a Madisonian and would like to be on the show, please email at ben at themadisonianpodcast.com to express interest. Please support us by buying our line of merch at teespring.com slash stores slash the Madisonian podcast or by clicking the link in the description of this episode. Thank you so much for listening to the final episode of the Madisonian podcast. Keep an eye out for next week's episode where I will talk briefly about what I took away from this podcast.